Good to be with you guys this morning. Welcome to week number two of our sermon series, about six-week sermon series that we're calling Chelton's DNA, where we are being reminded of what we are all about as a church. And actually, I hope you find that it's not that unique. I believe it's actually what the church has been about since its conception. We've always been about up, worshiping our triune God, as Jim introed this morning, worshiping Father, Son, and Spirit with all of who we are, and, and that leads us to inward, loving one another, in spite of differences, even as Jin just called us to. And then if we're up and we're in, that means we also must be, it's only one question quiz, out, right, it's got to be all three at the same time, outwardly sharing the gospel in word and in deed with those who are yet to be a part of the family of God. I can tell we're going to need to liven up just a little bit this morning. I think it's the dreary weather, it's the three, whatever, I don't know what it is, but we're going to... Here's how we're going to try and liven this up. Uh, We're going to go to John 4, which is not really the livened up part, but you'll see maybe. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be. If you have a copy of your scriptures, I invite you to turn there, uh, flip there, turn it on, whatever whatever way you're accessing scripture. But I want you to to be able to look at this passage with me. Before we get to John 4, I'm going to lay a little groundwork uh, getting there. So it'll be a couple minutes till we actually read that passage, but you can turn there and, and kind of keep your finger there. But here's what I want you to take away from this morning's sermon, that worship is like drinking, okay? Worship is like drinking. And whenever I think about drinking, my first thought goes to our puppy, Finn, because no one drinks like our dog. Most dogs, you ever watch a dog drink? You ever watch animals drink? I mean, it's the most bizarre thing to me how, like, their tongue laps it up into their mouth. Most dogs are a little bit messy, right? My dog doesn't drink water. He tries to eat it. I mean, it's just like, all right, he sticks his whole face in his bowl, comes up looking like he just took a bath. He has to shake it off because it just makes a mess everywhere. He is the sloppiest drinker that I've ever seen in my life. He's, not also, he's also not very particular about what he drinks, or eats for that matter, the number of pieces of metal and chunks of asphalt that I've pulled out of my dog's mouth is astonishing. The other day he had a four foot long two by four that he was carrying around the yard as a snack. I mean, he will eat anything, but he will drink anything too. It's like every puddle on a walk is, is for him. Like that's just, he thinks it's, it's his private bowl. It doesn't matter how stagnant the water is. It doesn't matter what's growing on top of the water. It actually doesn't even matter that it's water. The other day, it was a mop bucket that I saw him going after, dirty mop water that he really wanted to drink. And, and I just look at him every time we're out, and it's like, Finn, what are you doing? Why, why are you drinking that? Don't drink that. In which he looks up at me and goes, oh, yes, master. I don't know what your dog sounds like. Our dog sounds like Doug from Up or Sven from Frozen, depending on our mood. Those are our dog's voices. Oh, yes, master. That is an excellent idea. You are so wise. Right back to his puddle, right? He, he can't intellectually understand what I'm saying. He drinks anything, and there's no reasoning with him. And when I think about Finn, it feels like I'm looking in a mirror. And it's what John 4 reminds me of. It reminds me of my dog. But let me show you what I mean, because worship is like drinking. And that's not my idea, that's actually God's idea. 
See, over and over again in Scripture, God compares worship to drinking. So, for example, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah begins right out of the gate with God speaking through his prophet, giving reasons, explaining why judgment has come upon the nation of Israel and will come further. And it's all about their worship. They have forsaken God, they've rejected Him, and have started worshiping all these things that their hands have made. They've ignored and given up the Creator and taken the creation. But Jeremiah 2.13 continues the idea, just switches the metaphor around, and it says this, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Because worship is like drinking, and every human heart is parched. Every human soul is thirsty. Now, we don't really know what thirst is. We all have had indoor plumbing our entire lives, carry around 100-ounce hydro flasks or whatever you've got, right? We we don't know what it's like to be really thirsty, but maybe you've had an experience like that before, to where you've been out somewhere and you ran out of water and you were so thirsty that your tongue stuck to the roof of your mouth. That metaphor is how Scripture uses, is what it uses to describe the thirst that is in our souls. That every human being ever born enters this world with a thirst that needs to be quenched. And in the exact same way that drinking is not optional for human existence, neither is worship. Worship is not optional. You must worship. You will worship and you do worship. You are worshiping right now. The question is, what is the object of your worship? To put it back in the drinking metaphor, what is it that you are looking to, that you are trusting in, that you are expecting to quench that thirst You know what I'm talking about with this thirst, right? Every one of us has this, this longing, this desire for something. And we're trying to figure out what is it that will satisfy that thirst in us. Worship is a question of what you will turn to for a drink for your soul. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, summarizes broken worship, worship in a fallen, depraved world in the two ways that are actually two sides of the same coin. Number one, he says, you've forsaken the spring of living water because you have been created by God for God, and there is nothing else in this entire universe that will quench the thirst that can only be quenched by God. He says, I am the source of living water, not only have we rejected Him, we've also started, since we can't help but worship, we naturally then start to find other things as the object of our worship, things that we're looking for to satisfy that thirst. The problem is, every one of the things that we go to is like a broken cistern, he says. It can't actually hold any water, which means that misplaced worship is like drinking from an empty cup. There's nothing there. It's not strong enough. And these man-made empty cisterns, the options are endless. John Calvin famously has said that the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. We can turn an idol, we can turn anything into an idol. 
And here's what Jeremiah says, no matter what it is, if it's not the triune God of the Bible that you are looking to as your source of satisfaction, of where you're going for a drink for your soul, then you are headed for a tremendous disappointment because there's no water. Think about it. We all know this is true, by the way, experientially. We all know that what God is saying through Jeremiah is true. We just, no one else is admitting it, and so we don't admit it, and we try to really convince ourselves that what we're going after is actually going to do something that it never has in our entire lives and never can. Success at work, we're always one project. You, you might finish a project, it might go really well, but guess what comes the next day? Another project. It's chasing the proverbial carrot. The approval of others. If you live searching for the approval of others, you know that all it takes is one person, and they could be a stranger, to express disappointment in you, and you will be paranoid and paralyzed. Wealth. There's always something new that you need to buy. There's never enough. That no, there is no, I have enough. Money, stuff, it doesn't matter. Comfort and security. You cannot protect yourself from suffering. Pleasure. Every bit of pleasure you've ever experienced, every amazing vacation, the best sex you've ever had, the best meal you've ever eaten, it always leaves you just a little disappointed at the end. But we just, some reason, don't admit that. But we know it's true. Jen talked about this last week, so I won't go on anymore. The hard thing is, as we look around and we experience some of our, we, we think back about some of our experience, and we look at others and we think, well, maybe this time it will, because look at so-and-so over there. They look all right. Well, I had some excitement, some pleasure out of that. That felt good for a while. The problem is, if there's anything there, it's actually drinking salt water. You ever drank salt water on purpose or on accident? <laughs> I think everybody does at the beach, right? This past year, Jolie and I have gotten into a show called Alone on the History Channel. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay, a couple people. That's right, James got it. The show Alone basically takes 10 survival, it's on the History Channel, it takes 10 survival wilderness experts and takes them to the middle of nowhere and drops them off with a limited amount of gear. They're isolated from one another and from the outside world, and basically, it's last man to tap out wins a prize. That's it. Every single season, day one, when they drop them off, what do you think everyone starts looking for? What do you think, James? Water. water. Fresh water. Gotta find water. In this one episode, this one contestant finds what he is confident to be fresh water. He's sure it's fresh water. Problem is, it was brackish. Brackish means fresh and salt mixed. And my man starts chugging it for a couple days. And it doesn't take long before he is dehydrated, sick in every possible way, is hallucinating and hearing things, which is probably not a good idea when you're by yourself in the middle of the wilderness because it's salt water. It may look like it's the real deal. It may look like it's able to satisfy you, but instead of actually bringing life, it actually expedites death.
Deep down inside, we know that all of these things that if we look for our thirst of our soul to be quenched by, we will come out dissatisfied, empty, and actually in a worse place. But this is where I think of my dog again. Proverbs 26.11 says, The way that a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats their folly. Our sin, our depravity runs so deep that we so easily forsake the spring of living water and run back to the same or even a different dry, crusty well that at best is filled with seawater. We're so foolish, we keep going back to the same thing. And I look at my dog, Finn, and I say, can't you just wait till we get home and you can have some real water to drink? Right? Right back to his puddle. In the exact same way that you can't reason with him, that's how I feel about myself. I know that that's going to leave me nothing, and yet what do I do? Go right back to my puddle. Go right back to my salt water. This is where it's so important, because I could stand here for the next seven hours and thump with, and, and attack your logic and say, look, logically, rationally, you should worship God. The problem is that's not how worship works. You are not logic into worship. You are not logic logic's not a word, I don't think. We're going to go with it, though. You are not logic into love. You are loved into love. You are loved into worship. Because you will naturally worship the most beautiful thing that you see. You never have to be told after having an incredible meal or seeing an awesome sports play, you don't have to be told, you should respond, that was great. Oh, okay, great, I'll do that. No, it comes up out of you when you see something beautiful, when you see something amazing that captures you, you respond. Which is why we must understand the nature of what God has given to us in His Word. That God's Word, His Scripture, is a revelation of His own character. He is showing you that He is the most supreme most beautiful, most gracious, most patient, most loving, most amazing being in the entire universe. He's the only one worthy of your affection and your worship and your devotion. That's his purpose in revealing himself to us, which is why it's so important that we understand that in the face of our foolishness, like a dog going back to its puddle, that God's response to us is so important that we see. And we read it earlier. Listen to his invitation to us. While you and I are running from broken sister into broken sister and lapping up salt water, listen to his invitation. Jim read it earlier. Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, which is every single one of us, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what, is, what, what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. God offers this invitation, and he says, what you're chasing isn't working. It wasn't designed to. Come to me, 
And like a dog, we look at him. Oh, yes, God, that is very logical. That makes great sense. Right back to my puddle. And we can't understand then why our lives are so filled with frustration, why we're so impatient, why we're so selfish, why we're greedy, discontent, angry, stressed. The list could go on. We refuse the, altar for, the offer from the only one who actually knows where life is, which is why we have to go to John 4. So I hope you didn't lose your spot. Go to John 4 with me. This passage is so rich and so much in it that we're not even going to try to cover it all. Actually, my hope is that you all have a study Bible at home. Uh, the Bible is a, Bible, a book that is not just meant to be read. It is meant to be read. It's also meant to be studied. I encourage you, if you don't have one, get a good study Bible uh, because uh, you can do some more homework on this later. There's so many amazing facets of this story. I want to read the first half for us, beginning in John chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. I'm going to tell you why that's my favorite verse in a minute. I'll come back to that. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? John tells us a little side note, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Let me just pause there for a moment. Verse 4 starts off, I just, I just said, it's my, probably my favorite verse in this whole chapter. It says, He had to go through Samaria. Now, Verse 3, if you look up there and see that verse 3 says that he is in Judea in the south, and he's heading to Galilee in the north, and right in between is Samaria. So it's very easy to read that verse and just go, oh, well, Jesus cares about efficiency. He's just a good route planner, right, men? Right? <laughs> is, it that, is that it? Jesus just wants to be efficient in his travel? I don't think so. If anything, you ought to hear this verse like this. Imagine you're a parent and you see your kid is hurting, but you're in a conversation, what are you going to say? Hey, I'm sorry, I have to go. They need me. Jesus had to go to Samaria. It's a divine will. This is God. This is His heart on display because He sees people wandering to different wells, and He meets them because he has something better to offer them. He had to go to Samaria, and he goes and he sits down by a well. 
Now, we just read Jeremiah 2. So you've already got something in your mind going, oh, wait, there's something different here. And not just any well, but he goes to an enemy's well. We just heard, right, John, verse, uh, John tells us in verse 9 that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The Samaritans and Jewish people had a very complicated relationship. And up comes this woman. And we don't, many know, we don't have many details on her, right? We don't know her name. We don't know her story. We know very little. But there's some odd things going on that if you've heard this preached, you probably already know these things. Gathering water is a communal event in ancient times. The women would go together. This woman appears to be alone. They would not go at noon. When the sun is the hottest, when would they go? In the morning, maybe again in the evening if they needed to. John makes it clear this was about noon. Something is up. Something is going on. And then in the course of our conversation, you can tell Jesus and this woman are just whoop, Different playing. They're playing different games, actually. They're talking about two totally different things. This poor woman's going, I don't want to walk out here to this well again. And Jesus is like, you missed me. It went right over your head. Let's, let's keep coming to that. So let's see what he does. Pick it up in verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, You have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is actually quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's trying to change the subject a little bit. Little does she know, she actually finally came to the right subject. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And now we see what Jesus is doing. Jesus this whole time has not really cared about water, but he's playing off of what Jeremiah was doing, right? He's talking about this thirst. He says, listen, I know that the well that you keep coming back to, not Jacob's well here, I know, woman, the place, the well that you keep coming back to to try to satisfy your soul. And he reveals that by saying, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. No, she's on her sixth man. Why? We don't know. But she's coming back to that relationship She's trying to use relationships to quench the thirst of her souls. And she seems to be ostracized by the community. There's so many things going on here. She keeps coming back to that same dry cistern. Perhaps it's to feel accepted and just loved. Perhaps it's security and, 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 and being safe, which in Jesus' day for a woman would have come through having a husband. But what does Jesus do? He puts himself in her path and meets her where? At her well. 
because he wants to reveal to her the broken cisterns that she keeps coming back to that cannot satisfy. And he offers her something better. He offers her himself. And the woman says, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus' response is incredibly powerful. In your Bible, it says, in the, if you're using the NIV, the interpreters added a word, actually, to try and make some clarity. It says, I am he. I think, unfortunately, it actually detracts from what John is doing by adding the word he, because what he says is, I am. And if you know the book of Exodus, that should sound a little familiar. If you know the book of John, that should sound familiar. Because I am is the very name that God revealed himself to Moses in. Who should I say sent me? I am the ever-existing, all-sufficient, self-sustaining, promise-keeping one. That's who I am. And Jesus says the exact same thing. And why is that so powerful? Because this passage is essentially a summary of the entire heart of God as revealed throughout all of Scripture from the very beginning of the fall of humanity. The triune God is seeking worshipers. Do you know what God does not do? stand back and wait. He pursues. He comes to us at our broken cisterns of false worship and invites us to the real deal. When Jesus says, I am that one, He's taking the invitation from Isaiah 55, the one that says, hey, come to me, anyone who is thirsty, the offer that humanity has rejected time and time again. And by the way, this reveals the very different heart of God, because I don't know what you do when someone rejects my offer, but I can tell you what my temptation is almost every time. Well, fine. You don't, you don't want my help? You reject me? Fine. Good luck. I pull back. You know Why? Because my very identity is tied up in your response to me. You reject me. You reject my help. You reject my offer. You've rejected me. But praise God, that is not how our God works. Because when He is rejected, when the source of living water is rejected, He doesn't pull away. He actually leans in even further. Because his identity is not altered one single bit by your rejection of him. He doesn't go sulk and pout in the corner. He is saddened, Scripture tells us. But he's not sad because he loses out. He's actually sad because he knows there is no source of life outside of him in the entire universe. And he knows that you're missing out. And so he moves towards us. And so what happens is Jesus, this is the picture that we see in John 4, but it's actually the picture of his entire incarnation and ministry, that Jesus, compelled by love, looks out and sees us running to different wells, and he had to come to earth, to those who were his enemies. He had to come where we are to interrupt our journey to the broken cistern of misplaced worship in order to pursue us and offer us real life. This is God's character. This is His love for you. And I know that that's true, and I know that offer is for you, because this story is also a setup for a later story that we find a couple chapters later in John 19. Because in John 19, 
John makes sure that we know that it was about noon when Jesus is taken to the cross, when he's condemned falsely for something he didn't do, and he's handed over to the Roman soldiers, and he's led away carrying his own cross that he's going to be nailed to. It was about noon. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, verse 28 says of chapter 19 says, knowing that everything had now been finished, and in order that Scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said what? I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. You see, in order to offer you life, Jesus experienced a thirst, not just because his body was beaten, not just because he hadn't had a drink, but Jesus bore in himself the thirst that you and I can't get rid of so that he might give you real life. Real life is the offer. That's how deep his love is for you, that he would hold nothing back, that he would give himself for you, his enemies. And if you don't believe that's true, look back at John 4. Who did Jesus come to? He came to a woman who was from an an enemy of his, who was ostracized by her community, whose story was so messy, we don't even have the details of it. I don't care how messy your life is. I don't care what cistern is your preference. Jesus comes and said, I thirsted so that you can be satisfied. That is our God's love for you. He's not content to let you have your, your, your salt water lapping up dirty water like a dog. Jesus comes to us at our broken cisterns and offers us life. And then look what happens at the rest of John 4. Look at what happens when this woman meets the most beautiful being in the entire universe. She drops everything. This water that she was so obsessed with, what does she do? Look at verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way towards him. This woman is so caught by seeing the beauty of Jesus that she leaves everything. She is amazed. She says, a man told me everything I ever did, and I... I can't help but think it's not just that she's amazed that Jesus knew her secrets. We've all had people that have known some of our secrets and have used those secrets against us as a weapon. What amazes this woman is that Jesus fully knows her, and he's full of grace, and he's full of love, and he knows every one of your stories more fully than you're even aware of yourself, and his offer to you is the same. He says, I love you. I care for you more than you could ever imagine. And that is the deepest desire of our hearts, that we would be fully known and fully loved. And our souls will be totally restless and thirsty until we find rest in the God who is the spring of living water. We are not logicked into loving Jesus. We are loved into worship. 
Because when you witness something amazing, it reacts. You react to it. So the question isn't necessarily primarily intellectual for us today. It's a question of our attention. Because you and I are so easily amused that we don't take the time to look at the greatness of God. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. That we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are actually far too easily pleased. We settle for something less than the spectacular God of the universe. And we fill our lives with such noise and busyness that we don't actually have time or space. We have no margin in our lives to see and sit at the feet of the greatest being in the universe. Because as we see him, as we sit with him, what happens is our hearts will be moved and we will surrender everything because why wouldn't we? We're busy settling for mud pies that take the shape of Instagram followers or the perfect house or more money. All mud pies. And the beautiful thing is Jesus continues to offer his invitation. And the prayer for us today can be very simple. Lord, show me your beauty. The way that Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. Show me how much more amazing you are than anything else in this entire universe. And then my challenge for us is to then cultivate habits in our lives that would create space for us to meet with Jesus and to see his beauty. Because we do this kind of sick thing where we fill our minds and our ears 24-7 with noise, and then we're frustrated because we can't hear from God. Can't show up to corporate worship once a month and go, well, I don't, I don't see how great God is. We can't, we can't leave our Bibles to accumulate dust and not read God's revelation to us of himself and be frustrated as to why we don't hear from Him. Here's the amazing thing of grace, though. While you and I are doing all of those things, Jesus comes to you in your well, and He might be doing that right now. He might be doing that very thing right now for the first time in your life or for the hundredth time, maybe the hundredth time today. He is showing up and saying, listen, I'm not going to wait for you to come to me. I'm coming to you, and I'm bringing you life. Here's the thing about habits. Not only do our habits express the things that we worship, but they also work the other way and we shape the things that we worship by our habits. And look at what this woman does. Last thing. When this woman finds something that's worth everything in her life, she runs and she can't help but talk about it. When you think about our three, upward, inward, outward, our three pieces of our Chelton DNA, of who we are, I hope you actually don't think of them as three, but think of them as one, because they are mutually dependent on one another. True worship will be expressed in love for God's family and expressed in our reaching out to the world around us. They are mutually dependent. Look at what this looks like. Pick it up in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
But when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. First, they believed because of the testimony of one who had met him. But then they saw for themselves. You realize, friends, this is exactly how God continues to work. Your story, your life, captured by the beauty and the goodness of God, leads to a life of transformed obedience and love and generosity that the world will see. And your life becomes an invitation. Your words become an invitation to come and see And the Spirit of God works through that. That's His ordinary means of how He calls people to Himself. Revelation 22, 17 says this, The Spirit and the bride, the church, say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. The Spirit is calling. The church is calling. That is our mission As we are captured with God, come and see, world. Come and see. Come, all who are thirsty, for the first time and over and over and over again. Let me pray for us. Father, you are incredible. We've been singing about it. We've been talking about it all day. Your grace, your beauty, your amazement, your power, and you're mindful of us. You see us rejecting you, and you don't walk away, but you walk towards us. You're incredible, Lord. Give us a vision of yourself. Capture us with how beautiful you are, how amazing you are. Transform us. We want to be worshipers who give you all of ourselves. And Lord, we know that if we see you, we will be amazed by you. And Lord, there's a world around us in desperate need who, is, who are thirsty. Come, all who are thirsty, And the answer is all are thirsty. And so as we even think about going from this place, Lord, may we be people who take the water of life with us. Lord, show us your glory. Transform us by your Spirit so that we might love you more and worship you with all that we have. We give you the praise for you alone have rescued, you alone have saved us. And we praise you and honor you for your goodness in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.